Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Brendan McNamara. Brendan teaches religion at University College Cork, and is the author of this outstanding new monograph, The Reception of Abdu'l-Baha in Britain, East Comes West, just published by Brill 2021. Brendan, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Crawford. Lovely to see you. It's good to see you as well. No, it's great to see you. Listen, before we talk about the book, tell us a bit about yourself. You've been working on this subject, um, the, 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 the formation, the expansion of the Baha'i faith for a long time. Tell us how you came to publish this book earlier this year. Well, thanks, Crawford. Yeah, I have actually. I mean, in a sense, too, I've kind of come to academic work quite late, uh, but I've always had an interest in history and I've been, if you like, an amateur historian. So working away and particularly around the history of the Baha'i Faith and its connection to Ireland. So I did uh, edit a compilation of uh, essays or a, a public uh, number of essays around the early links between the Baha'i Faith and Ireland about 10 years ago. But um I always wondered um, uh, about Abdu'l-Baha's visits, which were a particular interest to the West where between 1911 and 1913, which were a huge um, event within Baha'i history. Uh, but I wondered also because it was such a public event uh, and created such a, uh, an interest on the part of vast numbers of people at the time, just even from press uh, 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 press re- press coverage of, uh, of of the day. I always wondered, well, what was it about Abdul Baha that people were interested in? So, or in other words, looking at it from the other side, and uh, having become involved in academic work a number of years ago, and eventually getting to the stage where I I did start a PhD, <laughs> a little bit late, but better than late than never. I chose that subject, the reception of Abdul Baha in Britain, to try and get behind that. So. Who were all these high profile people who welcomed Abdu'l-Baha into discussion around religion uh, just in the early years of the 20th century? What was the why? What was their agenda? What was the nature of the of their interest in this, uh, if you like, Eastern religious figure who had come out, who had come out of a period of most of his life being in prison, in fact, uh, or being in prison and in exile and. So in a sense, the work then developed in my mind around what would it be like not to do a book about Abdu'l-Baha per se, but about that reception, those individuals who I found were quite extraordinary, interesting, fascinating people in their own right and had multiple uh, uh, ideas around what was happening with respect to religion in their own time for various different reasons. And so in a way, it was kind of recovering that history. And I think what you'll find is that that history is a, a is looked at in a particular way. That's what I found, what I would contend, and that that may be not the full picture. So it wasn't necessarily trying to uh, recover everything the way it actually was, but to somehow throw some light on some obscure aspects of that period, which are, would be significant and would be significant for us in the here and now. So I, I've worked on that. I've worked also on on uh, issues of identity um, and looking at uh, figures in Irish history who were involved in the 
in the empire, in the age of empire, is very topical at the moment. And, and one of the projects I'm interested in doing now is around that as well. Uh, people from Ireland who fetched up in Iran in the early days of the Baha'i Faith, for example, who uh, a doctor from who was half half Irish from Kilkenny, uh, wife of the British minister to the Shah in 1852, around the, the very tumultuous days of the birth of the Baha'i Faith in Iran, and how they, in service to the empire and being from Catholic backgrounds, how they how they negotiated all those different um, challenges around identity and were witness to some very uh, extraordinary happenings and left records of them. So which was, of course, quite interesting. So I've published on that as well. Uh, so, yeah, this was a, a labor of interest. But it was also I was very conscious that coming from my own Baha'i background, that I was going to be looking uh, around the corner at it to some extent, around areas that haven't been looked at before. And um, I was very grateful then having having come through the study of religions department in UCC and having have, having uh, studied under some wonderful uh, people, Professor Brian Bocking, Oliver Sharbrot, um, that really I was, it was almost, I was training to do this piece of work uh, and hopefully other pieces of work on into the future. Great. Oh, thanks, Brendan. That's, that's really helpful just to contextualise the book that we're talking about today, The Reception of Abdul Baha in Britain. Um, as I say, just published by Brill 2021. Um, you, you've mentioned there the Baha'i faith and obviously Abdu'l-Baha as well. Could you tell us really, really quickly for any listeners who aren't familiar with that tradition, how it emerged, when it emerged, where it, where it emerged, maybe some of the principal themes in Baha'i teaching uh, that Abdu'l-Baha then was, was able to take forward? Well, it, it emerged in Iran in the mid-1800s. Um, and um, Abdu'l-Baha is actually the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. And there are two principal figures in Baha'i history, founding figures, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, both of whom are mentioned in the book, just to give to give background to Crawford. And um, they emerged in a Shia uh, uh, context, in a Shia milieu. And the um, idea was that they were, they, they, their teaching uh, that sent, that was the founding theme of their new religion was that they really were um, fulfilling prophecies within uh, Shia uh, tradition that there would be a new messenger, a prophet of God would come uh, and that they, it would bring new teachings for humanity in, in, this, in this particular day. So what happened as an outcome of that is that for a variety of different reasons and fascinating reasons, it caused a tremendous um, uh, tumult, a, a tremendous air of, of um, interest on the part of many, many thousands of people from all different uh, sections and segments of society, such that the clerical and uh, um, civil authorities arose to try and extirpate this new religion. And as a result, many thousands of people were killed. The Bab himself, the first uh, founding figure, w was executed. But Baha'u'llah, because of his his uh, his family background, perhaps, which was from a very influential uh, family with, with very uh, strong royal connections, uh, rather than being executed, he was exiled. And so that begins the story of Abdu'l-Baha, because Abdu'l-Baha, as a child, with his father, was sent out of their home country from place to place until eventually uh, in... Uh, 
distant part of the Ottoman Empire, which was Syrian Palestine, they were consigned to the prison city of Akka. And that was their final, was to be their final destination to try and remove them from any uh, centre of influence. And so Abdu'l-Baha, Baha'u'llah, uh, of course, uh, lived and passed away in 1892 during that period. And Abdu'l-Baha, uh, for another number of years, was still consigned, uh, not necessarily always within a prison cell, but under house arrest. Sometimes those uh, restrictions were eased, but certainly always within the city of Akka um, and uh, until he was in his late 60s. So the major themes of the Baha'i faith are around the oneness of God and the oneness of religion. And so the teachings teach that, that uh, there is a, a, c- a connection between all the religions in that they come from, from one div- divine source and that uh, this is the latest emanation of God's will to humanity. Socially, it has aspects that meet the needs socially, but spiritually it reiterates and amplifies spiritual themes that exist in all the, the major religions. That would have been quite challenging, of course, at the time within an Islamic milieu, particularly where that is regarded as being the last chapter in uh, the uh, scheme of divine revelation um, and um, and explains some of the uh, pretty awful uh, treatment that was meted out to people who accepted accepted this new faith. So the life then of Abdu'l-Baha in the prison city of Akka is one of, of, of support and very much um, uh, serving the uh, needs of this newborn faith, the centre of which is his father. Um, and uh, during these times of, of, of exiles from one place to place, it, it so happens then, of course, that the seed of this new faith is moving further and further away from its country of origination. And small communities of Baha'is are developing in all those eastern countries that surround Iran, Iraq, uh, and then, of course, into Syrian Palestine, which, of course, I should say, has now become modern-day Israel, which was, uh, is, is quite an interesting fact that the world centre of the Baha'i faith, the centre of it spiritually and administratively, surrounding the resting place, the tomb of Baha'u'llah, and administrative centre close by, is all in, is all in, in modern Israel. So Abdu'l-Bahá then finally, in his uh, middle to late 60s, um, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the, uh, the, 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 the Sultan and the Young Turk Revolution, was finally allowed, along with many other religious and political prisoners, finally to be free. But at that stage, even during those years, as I mentioned, there was an interest that developed in countries close by, but they also, that word spread far and wide. And sometimes it came actually, interestingly enough, from missionaries returning to, uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the West, for want of a better word, um, who would bring word or newspaper reports or diplomats. I think, for example, I think I mentioned the uh, wife of the British minister in Tehran at the time of the Bab was uh, Lady Sheen, who was actually a wolf from, her name was Wolf, maiden name Wolf from Ennis. And she wrote a very influential travelogue in 1856, having been in Tehran around the time of the uh, the Babi upheavals uh, called Glimpses of Life and Manners in Persia, in which she details uh, quite a number of the events that, that take place, that she, that she kind of gathered information about 
from her time in the in the in the British mission mission there. So word was spreading, and um, the interestingly enough, even in the newspapers in Ireland, <laughs> the North and South local newspapers had uh, syndicated reports of these of these happenings. Um, so it was that a number of uh, uh, sympathisers, uh, even before Abdul Baha's release from prison, were able to travel from the United States, from the United Kingdom. There's a very famous group of people under Mrs. Hurst, who was the wife of the newspaper mogul who travelled um, in a, the uh, early 1900s before Abdul Baha was released in 1909 and uh, 1908, that they, they were able to visit with Abdul Baha. It was difficult, there were restrictions, but they were still able to see him in his home. And so in that way, word was coming out of this very ex- extraordinary, charismatic figure who was in prison for uh, for practically most of his life. And Abdu'l-Bahá had taken over, which I should have said, on his father's passing as head of the Baha'i religion. He was the he was the uh, the head of the religion after his father's passing by dint of his father's appointing him as such in his will and testament. So Abdu'l-Bahá was a known figure then, he, certainly in the Levant, and also becoming more known otherwise. So the the um, the seeds, if you like, of the Baha'i faith then were beginning to spread in the 1890s, early 1900s. And um, obviously, as you mentioned, there are some very significant society figures who take an interest in Abdu'l-Bahá, his um, situation, his teachings, uh, uh, and so on. And one of the things you show us, Brendan, in the book is that when these ideas eventually begin to migrate to England, um, that they, they take root uh, in... Quite a surprising milieu, perhaps, a, a milieu that might be characterised by um, obviously an interest in Eastern religion, but also an interest in Celticism and spiritualism. What's what's going on when people with those kinds of interests take an interest in Abdu'l-Bahá? It's quite fascinating, isn't it, Crawford? Um, um, and it was quite fascinating to me to see. Um, I remember speaking about Abdu'l-Bahá at a at a at a summer school once and uh, talking about. Uh, this marvellous figure, R.J. Campbell, who was a Congregationalist minister in London at the time, probably the most renowned religious figure of his era in terms of how well known he was, very charismatic, uh, known as being the arbiter of a new reformation, some people thought, within uh, liberal Protestantism. And I, somebody said, when I mentioned his name, they said, well, why was he interested in Abdu'l-Bahá? Because he became very interested in Abdu'l-Bahá. He and a number of others, uh, Canon Wilberforce, who was really a scion of the Anglican Church, one of the, you know, his background, his, his grandfather had been the abolitionist. He was the Archdeacon of Westminster, chaplain to the Parliament, to, 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 uh, to the Parliament in Westminster. And he also became quite interested. And then you have other people, you know, Celticists, spiritualists, Wesley Tudor Pole, who uh, theosophists, of course. So I think what it betokens is, and when we see what happens, is that there is a tremendous uh, interest in in religious inquiry. And that, if you like, looking at it from the perspective of what is normally considered the Victorian crisis of faith, which has been problematized by scholars now, it wasn't a matter of just people losing their religion as uh, as a factor of 
a new interest in science and development and enlightenment thinking and so forth. There was also a tremendous evangelical movement at that time, and you probably know more about this than, than I do, certainly, Crawford. And there was a certain response to that. And one of those responses was within, it was like a, a religious response or a Protestant response, was to look for ideas outside. Um, I know one, one of the commentators of that time, when they look at what was a time of great perturbation for Protestantism within, within, the, British, uh, within the British experience, when they look at that time, they say there was no need to look outside Christianity to answer or to understand what that was all about. But in fact, looking back at that period now, what we can see is, in fact, that people began to really look outside. There was a tremendous universalist idea that religions were connected to each other, albeit people were looking through a Christian lens or filter. They still believed very deeply in the principles of Christianity. They were still willing to think that there wasn't just one religion in the world, that all the that many religions had had something that they needed to connect with. And I think why were they were interested was uh, is an interesting is an interesting question. I think perhaps they also thought that if they could find some kind of spiritual germ of of uh, of inspiration, that it would somehow also be a, a help to renew what had become in their estimation, somewhat moribund, that was trying to respond to this evangelical uh, movement, uh, great movement in Britain at the time. Uh, and that brought together a, a quite extraordinary, uh, diverse range of people who were beginning to inquire about religions outside of Christianity. And so I think... Um, Gibbs calls it journeying outside of traditional Christianity. So they were journeying. They weren't necessarily going to, to leave most of them. Some of them did, but they were journeying and they became interested in, in Buddhism. There's a great movement and interest in Buddhism at the time. If we talk about the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, there's an interest in, and, and then Theosophy and Baha'i and all kinds of Celticism and Tudor Poland and, and Celticism is very interesting from in, in this context. And uh, I think that, that maybe you're looking at then also what wasn't uh, looked at in great detail, I thought, when I came to write the book, was that this actually resulted in the visits to Britain of these very interesting religious figures, real icons, um, like Vivekananda, uh, who was uh, the Vedantist Hindu, Hindu figure, like Dharmapala, a great Buddhist modernist, uh, Inayat Khan, who um, was also... Uh, very influential, maybe not known, founder of Western Sufism. And then Abdu'l-Bahá, and I thought, well, there's a kind of a genre there. Of, there's something happening here. And a lot of the people who were interested in Abdu'l-Bahá were also interested in Vivekananda slightly earlier, were also interested in Dharmapal, were also interested in theosophy. Theosophy also seemed to be one of those connectors between people like Tudor Paul, the Celticist, and Wilberforce, the, the Anglican, the Anglican Archdeacon, um, and R.J. Campbell, the Congregationalist Minister, whom I mentioned earlier on. And then also, um, and it did seem to be, and you mentioned earlier that people in high society, it did seem to be people in high society, maybe people who had more time <laughs> to think about these things, who were interested in these religions. So you have figures in the, in the establishment, Lady Blomfield, actually was Irish, also an Irish woman who um, married into, in, into the, uh, 
into a, uh, an establishment family in Britain and, and others. Uh, Sister Nevedita, who was from Armagh, who became uh, Vivekananda's uh, um, uh, star believer in, in, uh, and, and supporter in Britain and later, later in, in, in India. And extraordinary figures like this. And I could see that there was a kind of a web of connection between them. There was a kind of a field of religious inquiry. I think I, I, I began to think about it in terms of this field that had connections between the centre and the edge. And, you know, there was movement between one area and the other in terms of influence and so forth. And it created a great energy that somehow later on uh, was recorded, was, was not captured in the recording of it. And that comes then to later on in trying to think about, well, why, if that was so uh, such an exciting milieu, and if that was so important, uh, and like if, when Abdu'l-Bahá came to Britain, he was, he was already a known figure that people had known about the Bab, uh, that people like E.G. Brown, who had spent their most of their uh, academic career, a lot of their academic career, um, bringing the, the figure of the Bab to uh, to um, uh, to a, 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 an English reading audience that um, you know that 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 why isn't that remembered? You know, we, we think of the the amount of of, of coverage that it that, that it attracted at the time or interest that it attracted at the time. Mm. So Celticism is a very interesting one because there is that connection between people like Wesley Tudor Pole and I mentioned and go through this in the book the Glastonbury Cup. And his idea of creating an indigenous Christian identity or, again, a, a, um, a kind of a, a, a renewal, a Christian renewal around, around Glastonbury, around sacred landscape of Glastonbury, finding this cup, which had actually been placed there, but still they believed had been at one time in the, in the, in the uh, possession of Jesus or in, certainly in that, in that uh, uh, around at that time and had been at one time, though not the Holy Grail, he said. And there's this fascinating story about how he uh, tries to track down the provenance of that cup, um, uh, trying to, again, ignite this renewal of Christianity, not just in, in England, but also in Scotland and in Ireland, um, which brings him to Constantinople, because he feels that there is documentation. He found it's a, it's a quest of extraordinary proportions and it's wild in a way. It gets into all kinds of trouble. He's arrested. And, uh, uh, but what happens there is that it's the first time that he comes in contact with Baha'is and with the, the idea that there is this figure who has been imprisoned for most of his life, uh, in nearby, uh, uh Akka and who has, has, who has this influence, albeit being a prisoner, he has this influence and popularity. And he became enchanted with the idea and, and began to investigate it. Came back to Britain uh, after one of these quest uh, adventures, thinking that he probably was the person who knew, you know, knew about the Baha'i the, the, the Baha figure, Abdu'l-Baha, and found that there were actually others. And uh, amongst them, uh, amongst those others, were people who were also interested in this Glastonbury cop. So there's all these kind of connections. So, I mean, you, you book describes really vividly, Brendan, both the very personal quest of someone like Tudor Pole, but also um, um, Abdu'l-Baha's visits, for example, to R.J. Campbell's church, where there are, I think you tell us, five, six, seven thousand people r regularly crowding out. And, and he has the opportunity to address, a, you know, a vast audience in the centre of London, in the city temple. 
And I think you also tell us that, that Campbell presents uh, Abdu'l-Bahá as someone who is essentially preaching the same thing, the same message. So what does, what does that tell us about the nature of liberal Protestantism? Or, or that phase of liberal Protestantism, often, you know, often when we read the intellectual history of this period, Protestant liberals are presented as being very rational, very hard-edged, in quite in contrast to the theosophists and the spiritualists and the Celticists of this world. And yet, Ab- Abdu'l-Bahá speaks to them all. Mm. How, how do you explain that? <laughs> quite a fascinating question, Crawford. I think also, you know, it's a factor of how this uh, this history is captured and uh, and you know it's probably a later point in the book to see why the um the story of these figures and their interests is not fully drawn and it's it's some part of they have in the, they have a part in that themselves in the way that they later on recall their history or they may be like wilberforce and in, in the war comes and he, he dies during the war and never really probably has a chance to reflect Campbell does because he he lives quite a lot longer but for a variety of reasons some of it to do with themselves that history is not very well drawn and anything uh, before the war is kind of looked at it being just a little bit maybe you know a little bit uh, 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 idiosyncratic a little bit off the wall uh, I think even one of well-known his, historian Barbara Chuckman talks about about that period being effete, you know. So in a way, they're blamed also for causing everybody to get involved in this war and and not to be forgiven. But the understanding of that period before the war is not very good. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do in the book, was to recover the story of these wonderful individuals and how they did um, strike out to to, uh, to experiment and, and explore religious ideas and have a discussion which was vibrant around religion uh, in a way that uh, really didn't come about again until until the 1960s with the with the with the rise of the counterculture, if you like, and maybe that's a bit fanciful, but I think that that's probably not a bad uh, a bad comparison. Um, and so um, it, it 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 doesn't you don't find these things easily. I couldn't find those things easily as to why these people were interested until I began to read the newspapers of the time, and in particular, the Christian Commonwealth newspaper, which was the vehicle of um, uh, of, of R.J. Campbell, Congregation of Christianity. Now, you mentioned about the 7,000. I think we can't get an idea about how popular this man actually was. You know, there were rosaries made. Uh, I don't know, I, I, coming from a, a Catholic background myself, I don't know how what Protestants... You have find use in rosaries, but it is recounted <laughs> that uh, rosaries were made from his sermons, and you could write in and get a picture of him and a calendar and, and all kinds of. There was all kinds of a personal um, memorabilia around him. He was uh, he was an extraordinary. But of course, he inspired tremendous uh, affection, and also from the from uh, hardline members of the establishment. The opposite as well. He was a very controversial figure in that sense, but hugely popular. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he did attract such a, uh, a vehement response from some of the from, from from the Anglican, some of the people in the Anglican Church, because he was so popular. And of course, that wasn't necessarily always the case with clergymen. But he was he was quite an extraordinary figure, and he was very interested in you know, for example, not only did he have Abdu'l-Bahá come along and uh, speak at his church in one of those 
uh, one of those uh, Sunday sermons, I think it was, just after Abdul Baha had arrived in, in London for the first time in September 1911, um, uh, Campbell and the editor of that newspaper, a man called Dawson, visited him and they covered his his his, his arrival. There was a big spread about him being in the newspaper. In fact, they covered every one of his, his, his uh, appointments or appearances in Britain throughout his visit. Um, but they also asked him to come, yeah, Campbell asked him to come to the uh, to the uh, city temple on Horborn Aqueduct to Viaduct rather to to um, to speak, and uh, there was a great closeness of interest on on, on Campbell's behalf. There's no doubt about it. And uh, but he also had Annie Besant come and talk about uh, about Theosophy. He had C.K. Chesterton come, and you know, so there was there was all kinds of people that he was interested in having, but you don't get that very much in his writings or in writings at the time, but you do get it in the Christian Commonwealth. You get the interest, uh, his interests expressed in articles about Buddhism and, and Hinduism and about Vedantism and all kinds of interesting ideas. You have people like Tudor Paul writing in, in, in the Christian Commonwealth. You have people like T.K. Cheney, who was a Oriel professor of 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 uh, of Christianity is that the, is that the interpretation right? of Holy Scripture, wasn't Inter it? Yeah. Interpretation of Christianity. Thanks, yeah. uh, Crawford, at, um, at at Oxford, and you have him um, also um, editing, uh, being a part of the uh, um, the editorial board of that newspaper. Um, it, it really is an extraordinary uh, expression, I think, of maybe a response to the to to, to their to their time, um, maybe a zeitgeist of now beginning to find out about new religions for the first time you know in, in like you have material appearing in english for the in the, in the english language for the first time um around different religions you have these figures who are known who actually have come to britain and who who, who are who are uh, quite familiar to to to, to many um and you have i, I suppose like well, if you could call it a religious literacy that didn't exist afterwards, um, and uh, and 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 wasn't reflected back on the period. It was almost like those middle years after the war, up uh, and those difficult times. And if you think of it in Irish terms, after independence and the whole uh, construction of what it meant to be this side of of, of the border, anyway, Crawford, about it, what it meant to be Irish, and what that actually left out. And what it what what it could only include, and one of the things about the identity generally of of people around those middle centuries after the First World War was that it it lost that element of religious literacy, which seemed to take the air seemed to be taken out of this religious field of inquiry with the onset of the First World War. So your book tells us, Brendan, there was two visits that Abdul Baha yes. made to Britain, wasn't there? The first one takes place very much in with that air of celebrity about it. The second one's maybe a little bit different. Some of his supporters, Campbell, Wilberforce, have backed away a little bit. And of course, C Campbell won't just back away. He will eventually come to recognise this as a, as a very grievous mistake. Um, and, and, and you mentioned the war. Is, is it the war? And I think you mentioned earlier on as well that Wilberforce, for example, is you know promoting participation in the war. Tudor Pole himself signs up, doesn't he, and and, and serves uh, within the army. Does is, is it the war that takes the steam out of this movement, or is something else at play? 
again, I, I think that probably could do with even more examination, Crawford. Um, what I tended to, to think, having looked at it, was that the war is that great big climacteric, which kind of um, uh, collapses a, a particular worldview. And um, it brings it brings home something like you mentioned Wilberforce. Wilberforce was was, was sometimes uh, would would step back and would, would sometimes come forward, as with the Glastonbury Cup, as with Abdul Baha. It, it it didn't betoken that he lost personal interest, but he was sometimes the um, he was sometimes the subject of of mild reproval from the authorities, and I suppose looking to the positions that he occupied. Um, uh, he probably was wise to uh, be careful at times. And also maybe he suffered for his interests because, you know, he was never made a bishop and there was all kinds of other things that happened. Even when his obituary is written, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, um, it's not very complimentary, shall we say, of him. Um, uh, so he does step back a little bit during the second visit. I think particularly because of something that happened in the United States. when Abdul, So Abdul Baha comes to Britain and then he uh, goes back to uh, to the Levant and then goes to the United States and on his way back, stops in Britain and in France and other countries on the way. But that's the second visit. So during the second visit, uh, there is, you know, there's a year be- between. They, um, yes, things have happened. Uh, Abdul Baha has been in, in the United States and uh, there's been a kind of a little bit of a frisson in the, uh, the um, uh, in in that he has been invited to speak at the um, uh, Episcopalian Church in New York and sits on the he was invited to sit on the bishop's chair and and this is is because the minister there like Wilberforce was quite interested in what he wanted what he had to say um, and this makes its way back by by dint of newspaper reports that are are contained in the Church Times and it's like a little bit of a reproval to to um, to Wilberforce but it certainly seems to soften his interest. But what happens when the war comes is of a different order, I think, in that the war comes, his nephew and his uh, uh, and his, his son, is it? Yeah, or all involved off to the front and um, it becomes much more personal. And there is a crisis within Christianities then, isn't there? There's a crisis of values, I think, is the way I put it in the book, where um, now you're fighting your friendly formerly friendly German Christian people and it's Christian against Christian which takes brings in kind of really must have been so difficult when they were thinking of Christianity moving out to and and in in a sense into this bright new world of other religions and and maybe even being the kind of overshadowing or overarching religion or religious uh, sensibility that would in somehow take them all in um, and now you have this this happening, and it's it's frightfully um, uh, it, it, it's it's traumatizing. And you, so you have Wilberforce actually saying, which is something that seems so out of character, in a set piece um, sermon he gives in Westminster Abbey with very um, dignitaries from the government and and so on, and present and officers and soldiers ready to go off, that it's really doing the will of God to kill to kill Germans, basically, which is something that seems to be completely opposite to, to what he would have would have felt. Campbell is, is a slightly different, I suppose, then you look at what has happened individually with them as well. There is this great trauma, but it's experienced, of course, individually. For, Will, for Campbell, who always had that kind of 
a certain fragility of temperament. And there was always this kind of mystery illnesses that he would suffer from. Um, with the, before the onset of war, in fact, he did seem to suffer some kind of a breakdown and he's withdrawn from public life. So during the second visit, even though he invites Abdu'l-Bahá to his home and invites seminarians to come and meet Abdu'l-Bahá, and there is a very convivial uh, uh, discussion and uh, interplay between them and a lot of affection, uh, it would seem to be obvious. Um, Wilberforce, or sorry, Campbell at that stage has very much retired from public life and um, his breakdown becomes complete with the onset of war and he really resiles from all previous positions, uh, withdraws from congregationalism and takes Anglican orders and then enters into a life of quietism really until his passing in 1956. So he was, he was around for quite a long time but never afterwards craved the public eye and in fact went to such lengths that he writes in his, his autobiography which is 1916 quite early and um, really forswears any interest in in any of the um, in, in any of the other religions, uh, uh, and uh, it, it seems to kind of, as you say, say, well, this was all a mistake. But uh, other commentators have said that it wasn't necessarily the this autobiography wasn't necessarily the product of a lucid mind. I think one of them one of them says, but he, all those years afterwards, he doesn't comment on it, and at at the end. He leaves instructions that all his papers should be destroyed, which they were, unfortunately. So they're on his passing. So, so I think Tudor Pole. So I, I go into these figures, I suppose, in, to, to exemplify the fact that the crisis was felt generally, the crisis of values, but experienced individually. Tudor Pole is, you know, is a, it becomes, uh, is, is kind of anti-war, but still feels this sense of duty and is very interested in, in, He's very interested in spiritual experiences and spiritualism and Celticism. Uh, in, in, as I mentioned, the, or, or this idea of, of an indi indigenous Christianity growing up around sacred landscape in Glastonbury. Um, but he also is this got the sense of the the movement of souls from from here to what he called Odila, the, the you know the next the next level, and how he could facilitate that. And he does a very interesting thing. He enlists as a soldier, even though because of his status and the the the, the work he did, he was he was in a um, a protected uh, employment. He didn't have to go, but he also could have gone in as an officer. And he lives and as a as a as, as an enlisted soldier, and is for those first number of months the experience of being there until eventually they persuade him to take a commission. And um, he finds himself in the wounded and then transferred to the intelligence wing in Egypt, where in a very interesting serendipity he also is involved in Abdul Baha's protection around the first, the, the coming to the conclusion of the First World War, when Abdu'l-Bahá back now in, in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, um, in Palestine and in, in Israel, present day Israel, is under threat as the war is coming to an end from um, uh, the, the, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who is kind of out to, uh, to uh, again, religious persecution thing. Uh, and the uh, and uh, Tudor Paul is influential in in garnering support amongst you know high profile people back in the UK that when Allenby is going in to take Palestine that they actually protect 
the position of Andrew Bahad, that that's what, and that's what actually happens, you know, so an interesting come around. So a, a long-winded answer to your question, I'm sorry, Rob. No, it's all, Brendan. Uh, as always, a real pleasure. Thing that um, when you read the pages of the Christian Commonwealth and you realise just how, how, um, how, how diverse were their, the, the interests of these people and how they were connected to each other and how their, their kind of interests intersected like a web a connection, um, that it really, I think the war did explode in, in, in a great way. I'm sure there might have been other factors that I'm not aware of. Mm. Well, it's a fascinating conclusion to a fascinating book, Brendan. And um, really grateful for you for writing it and for coming on to the show to talk about it today. Can we ask you what you're working on next? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't realise it was going to an end. I talked too much. I know you said we should talk, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually um, very interested in that whole um, religious environment in Ireland prior to independence. And uh, I became interested in um, this uh, graduate of NUI Galway called James O'Keneilly, who went out as a member of the Indian Civil Service and became a high-ranking uh, judge of the High Court um, and a, a, a scholar of Islam. And um, so I'm interested in this whole juxtaposition of identity and empire and also then the validity of the work that is done in these circumstances, you know, because these are Orientalists and and that whole that whole uh, dimension. And uh, he was translating texts uh, around Wahhabism. Um, and they were, of course, for the purpose of of, of protecting the powers that be uh, against what they perceived to be arising. Islamist movement connected to Wahhabism in, 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 in Arabia that had come out of that. So this is the, the late 1800s, late 1850s and 60s. So <clears throat> I've become interested in that. I was looking at something that Brian Bocking and Christopher Shackle wrote around Max Arthur McAuliffe, who you, you may know is this Irish guy who also went out to be part of the Indian Civil Service and ended up as a scholar of Sikhism and a translator of the of the um, sacred texts of the Sikhs and who's very highly regarded. And uh, when he was writing about, about him in, the, in, in one of the uh, Irish Society, Academic, Society for Academic Study of Religion uh, journal articles, he talks about <clears throat> the fact that in Ireland um, in the 1900s, there was more known about religion in the East than there was in the year 2000. And of course, the, the, one of the factors of that is the movement between places like India and Ireland and the involvement in empire at all different levels, from the highest level to, to, to the lowest level. But there was also then this milieu that I just spoke about or that I cover in the book, which did also affected Ireland, you know, because Abdul Baha is also uh, appearing in the newspapers in Ireland. The going back even further, the predicament of the Babis and, and their persecution is appearing in the Roscommon Chronicle and in the, you know, the, there's advertis advertisements for talks about Abdul Bahab in the Unitarian Church and, you know, in the, in the Balamina Observer. And so not that everybody's reading newspapers, but there is this kind of religious literacy. And, 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 and Brian Bocking, Christopher Shackle mentioned people like um, Max Arthur McAuliffe and Sister Nevedita, and you know you have you have you have other people. Mir Olad Ali, who was the great Islamic scholar teaching at Trinity in those times. A little bit later on, the Baha'i writer George Townsend, people who actually stayed here as well as people who went out, and of course Uda Maloka, 
they've, uh, you know, scholars have just written this wonderful book. Uh, Brian and uh, and a couple of others uh, have written this wonderful book about the Irish Buddhist uh, monk in Burma in, in uh, around this time. So, what I'm long story short, Crawford, I'm I'm interested in that period and in those figures who are um, who are generating knowledge um, and uh, how we can place that knowledge, where we can place it. I think it's a very uh, um, contemporary issue, maybe even a contentious issue now, where we are in this side of the country about Ireland's involvement in empire, um, um, but also um, just all celebrating the fact that there is some very interesting things. Because, I mean, O'Keneely, the person I mentioned, of course, is not black and white. He's not just an Orientalist. He's not just uh, trying to uh, stave off um, this movement of Wahhabism. He's also trying to promote education, uh, he's, he's also involved in translating other things around around Islam. He's he's become a kind of a a, a, a lover of and and that's quite complicated. Then yeah, that's quite complicated. Well, Brendan, that sounds fascinating. That sounds like a great project, and hopefully, we'll have you back to talk about it sometime. That would be great. Thank you very much, Crawford. Yeah. Well, listen. Thanks for your time today, and thanks for writing this book, The Reception of Abdul Bahan, Britain East Comes West. Published by Brill 2021. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you so much, Crawford, and great to see you. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today as well. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.